turn with you now to our sermon text, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and truly, Lord, there are none who do not understand it in its basic terms, but Lord, there are many among us, all of us indeed, who do not understand it in its depth and do not keep it in its fullness. Therefore, Lord, we need your help, and we pray, Lord, you'd engrave these words, in fact, write your law upon our hearts, and that we would be like the psalmist, delighting in your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come now to the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, we're here in the second table of the law, almost finished indeed with the whole law, but we are deep into the second table of the law, having to do with loving our neighbor, having to do with the life of our neighbor. And we've said that every one of the, the commandments of the second table has, has to do with life. So it begins with you shall not murder. It has to do with life itself. The next commandment has to do with the means of bringing about life, the seventh commandment. And then the material, which sustains life. You should not steal. You should not take that material that, that sustains life. And now we come to words that sustain or else endanger life. You shall not lie. What do I mean when I say sustains life? How is it that a word or words can have anything to do with life? Well, they certainly can. Deuteronomy 32:46 says, Set your heart on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. It is your life. This law, this word of God is true physically. And as much as they would perish in their disobedience, even as he had warned them that they would, he had reminded them that they, and, and in fact, we saw, you, you read through the Old Testament, you see how many of them perished in their disobedience. And it's true spiritually. Words have consequences. Take indeed the example of the first sin. We said that Adam and Eve committed an act of theft. They broke that commandment. But before that, there was another sin. And you know what that was. Satan's lie. Now notice I'm going to read this in Genesis 3. But notice the interchange of truth and of falsehood in Genesis 3. There's a question given. It was a leading question. But in verse 2, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which in the midst, is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, minus that little exaggeration in addition, neither shall you touch it. These were words of life. These were words that would sustain their life were they believed and received by Adam and Eve. Then verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Beloved, these were lethal words. These were words of death. That if they were believed, if they were received, would lead to their death. Their spiritual as well as their physical death. And they did. And so when reckoning with God comes in Genesis 3.13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now that didn't absolve or excuse Eve, but absolutely that was true. She was deceived, 
And therefore those words killed her and her husband, and we all fell along with it. So it demonstrates that words can either give life or else they can kill. And then there are some other words, you know, so Satan's words, as they are spoken, if they're received, they will kill you. But then there are other words that if they are told faithfully and if they are believed, the result is spiritual life. You recall the situation in John chapter 6, when some of the people had left Jesus, he asked the twelve whether they were going to leave as well. And Simon Peter answered him saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life. That's what it is. God's word is a word of life. And inasmuch as it is told faithfully and received in faith, it is your life. Now the difference, of course, is whether or not these words are true. True words are a faithful communication ultimately coming from God himself and therefore tend to life. Even as much as he is the source of all life, so the words that come from him tend to life. And all words of truth are ultimately from God. Now let me just say, in case you've heard this, all truth is God's truth. Not all things that, that claim to be truth are in fact true. All right. So if they really, really are true... From the word of God or, at, or from the, the world that he's made and it is a, a true representation of those things, yes, they ultimately come from God and indeed are communication of them. But there are some things that purport to be truth that are not so. Anyways, true words come from God and they tend to life. False words are unfaithful communication and they ultimately come from Satan in one way or another and therefore tend to death because he is that murderer. And that's why this ninth commandment is so important to us in a multitude of ways. Once again, just two simple points. You shall not lie or diminish the truth. You shall not lie or secondly, diminish the truth. First, you shall not lie. In our text, of course, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But just to back up a little bit from that, you have to understand that God's speech reflects the holy character of God. God is not creating truth that does not have any connection with him. He is merely breathing forth that which he is inherently as a holy God. So Numbers 23:19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? He's not like we are. He's not fallible. He's not... Uh, faults. He is perfect and holy, and all of his words reflect his perfectly holy nature. And that is who God is, truthful through and through. Everything he says is true. Everything he says that he, does, he will do, he will certainly do it. And we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So that whatever is true of God is certainly true of his image, the Lord Jesus Christ. So John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the the way those things come together. Way, truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's truth. It reflects God's holy character. Now, as God is truthful and holy, and his words are truthful and holy and tend to life, so also God's speech is itself powerful, just as God is powerful. In creation, what does he do? What is the instrument of creation? Why, it's words. Genesis 1-3. Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke forth the universe. John 1, in the beginning was the what? The Word. The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was a light of men. Again, the interplay of rea- the reality that we, ha- we know, the words that brought it forth, and the life that comes from God himself, all wrapped up in these words, these powerful words. I've already mentioned that God uses words to save sinners. Of course, it's a means of grace. As the gospel is proclaimed, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And those whom the Spirit of God works upon because the Word and the Spirit work together, they are summoned from death into life. Life is imparted to them by the mere reception of God's Word. Yes, of course, as it is received in faith, but that's from God as well. God is constantly communicating his own knowledge, his love, and his joy to his people. And largely through what? Through words, through speech. And even you say, well, also the sacraments, and that is very true, but even the sacraments receive their, their meaning uh, from the word of God. And that's why we never would just come and without saying a word, administer the Lord's table, I must explain to you what these things mean in order for them to be rightly understood. It requires words. Now, that's true of all, that's all those things are true of God. Now, with that template, then apply it to mankind. Our words also reflect our character, unfortunately for good or for ill. Matthew twelve thirty four says, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? See that? You're evil. You couldn't possibly speak true things. And friends, let me just say again, for young people in particular, here's an application for you. Do not think that just because you go to a good and prestigious university that you can expect to receive words of truth from people. Okay? How can people who are themselves evil bring forth truth? They cannot do that. And therefore, in your reception of these things, you don't have an open door just receiving blindly. But rather, you're very discerning, and you have up your guard, you have up your shield, because you know that evil people, no matter how many degrees they have, and how well published they are, cannot bring forth God's truth. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. They can't help themselves. They might even wish somehow to bring forth truth. Maybe that was their intention, but they can't do it. They just can't do it because they're evil, they're wicked, and the words that come out of their mouth simply reflect their own wicked character, just as God cannot help in that sense, if you forgive me using that, that the words that come from him are utterly true and faithful, because that's him. That's his, that's his character. Now, I said our words, just like God, God's words reflect his holy character, and God's word, they do something. There's power. They, they enact something. So it is with our words. They reflect our character, and our words also have consequences. Thankfully, as not as direct and complete as God's word has, has great power and immediate consequences, but our words have consequences as well. It's extremely important in John 8.44, uh, you of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. I want to just dwell for a little bit on John 8.44. 
All right, here's the, the connection of the devil. He is a murderer, and he uses the weapon of words to bring death. And he can't do anything but that because he is so evil and wicked, so thoroughly wicked, nothing can come from him that is truthful. Even when he uses the word of God itself, it is tinged, it is tainted, it is distorted in order to bring about lies and destruction. Now, let's read some of the rest of that section to understand it a little bit more, expanding from that core. In verse 39, they, why did Jesus even bring this up? What was the point? Why is, he, why is he talking about Satan here? They answered, this is the religious leaders in verse 39, and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do that. Let me just say right there. The thing is, they were seeking to kill Jesus from early on in his ministry. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. And so they were doing accordance with their father. Verse 41, you do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth... You do not believe me. Do you see how that chain of, of connections here between their identity of who they are, who, where they sprang from spiritually, is their father the devil, what comes from their heart, and the words that they speak compared to the words that Christ speaks, which they don't receive, they can't receive. They rejected the truth. They planned to kill Jesus, and how, do they, how are they going to do that anyways? Were any of them bold enough just to pick up a weapon and and do so? No. They were going to use the weapons of their father, the devil. And they were going to speak lies. They were going to use false witness. Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, now, this just reminds you, they are searching high and low, looking for any false witness that they can use to put Jesus to death. And then finally, at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and re- rebuild it in three days. That, of course, was a distortion and a deadly lie. He didn't say he was going to destroy it. He said, if you were to destroy it, and when you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days, speaking of his own body, which was absolutely true, found to be true in the end. Well, they have these false witnesses, and then they speak a lie to, Caesar, uh, to, to Pilate. John 19.12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So he, he's, uh, even, even after this, these false, false witnesses, even after this kangaroo court, Pilate is on the edge of actually releasing him. But in their murderous intent, they have to use words in more forceful ways. And he said, the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. You are a traitor. That's a lie. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That's a lie too. And beloved, in the end they prevailed. Using their tongues, they 
murdered the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Lord with words. And so it is that the commandment, bringing it back to our text, in Exodus, the commandment starts with the worst case. You know how all the commandments are stated in terms of the worst case, but include all the lesser offenses along with it. And so it says in Exodus 20:16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the context, the specific context which this leads us to, has to do with using words that might take away your neighbor's life. For instance, in a few chapters, Exodus 23:1, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Meaning, don't be like those people that the Pharisees found to be false witnesses to put Jesus to death. Right? That's, what, that's, that's the number one and the highest uh, degree of this sin, is being a false witness in a murder test trial to bring somebody to death. Because if you bear false witness in this sense of a murder accusation, it's going to kill them, just like the first martyr, Stephen, right? So it wasn't just Jesus, but they did this again with Stephen. Acts uh, 6.13, they set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and his law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. A false witness. And what happened because of that false witness? Well, Stephen was put to death. Who then is guilty of his murder? Well, surely those false witnesses, along with everyone involved. Who then was guilty of the Lord Jesus' death? Not only the false witnesses, but all those who who lifted up their voice and said, crucify him, crucify him. And, And what happens then? What happens then later on? In fact, in Acts, as we'll see, Lord willing, soon enough. What happens? Does, does Peter say, well, you guys only used words, so you have nothing really to do with the death. You're not really murderers. No. He says, you are murderers. Absolutely. You killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate was going to let him go. You're responsible because of your, the use of your tongue. And that's why the Lord forbids us from bearing false witness against our neighbor. No. So that's the highest thing. That's the greatest degree. But you need not be trying to kill someone. You might also be trying to do something else on that table, that second table of the law. You could be trying to, for instance, defraud someone. In Genesis 27, you remember the situation of Jacob and Esau. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But you know how it was. She convinced him to wear the hairy garment and deceive. And to what end? Not to kill Esau, but to defraud him of his firstborn blessing. And many other instances in the history of mankind, and even today, are certainly to be found. There are many fraudsters who are using lies to defraud people of the things that they ought to have that belong to them. Well, the same could be said for everything else. It can be said for the seventh commandment. False words are used to defraud people in terms of the seventh commandment as well as the eighth. And in general, Matthew 12 says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God takes your words very seriously, and there's not a single one that you've ever spoken that will be forgotten. All of these things are known to God. Secondly, So we should not bear false witness, but secondly, neither should we diminish the truth. We should not diminish the truth. 
Once we have this principle in mind that our words are a reflection of our character and that words have very serious consequences, and thus we have this great emphasis on truth, and we see that there are other ways besides actual outright specific lying that might diminish the truth. And we begin with simply the love of truth or the lack of it. That's what this, the 119th Psalm is so beautiful. So that's what it's all about, is that the, the God's people, as they are sanctified and brought in conformity with God himself, and we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of these, and inasmuch as David the psalmist writes such words, he is foreshadowing and typifying the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But we are also should have a great love of the truth. And that's prior to everything else. Because if you, if you don't have a receptivity to the truth, then you're going to do little things to diminish it, to, to twist it, and to darken it, right? Because it's always going to be to you, like people in the world, to say, well, if I didn't actually say some outright complete lie which I'm going to get caught in, then it's okay to take a discount on the truth in various subtle ways. Well, people who love the truth don't do that. People who love the truth want truth to flourish and want truth to increase rather than to be diminished or distorted in any way. Second Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawlessness, lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? What's the root cause? Why is it that the lie of the Antichrist is going to prosper, friends? Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That is a root issue in our hearts. Do we have a love of the truth or do we not? As those who don't have the love of the truth, you're going to receive the lies of Satan and the Antichrist. And those who have a love of the truth will be saved. Now it is true that ultimately this is a gift of God, but of course we have a responsibility to nurture a love of the truth in ourselves and others. That is part of this ninth commandment, nurturing and fostering a love of the truth. Another way is not being willing to pay the cost of truth, right? We don't, maybe we do or do not have a love of the truth, but also there are those who maybe in theory love truth, but are not willing to pay the cost for it. The truth is not without its cost in this world. In this fallen world, those who live in in the light, those who speak the truth, will always have a cost to bear. Can I say that again? You will always have some cost in this world that is controlled by whom? By the father of lies, not the father of light. Murderer himself, Satan, is a prince of the power of this world. And therefore, inasmuch as the people of this world follow his lead... There will always be a cost to the truth, and God's people have to understand that. And so one of the things in the, uh, in the larger catechism is appearing and standing for the truth. It's from Proverbs 31.8. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. So not only are you going to, not going to join with a false witness in those who are uh, appointed to die. We might even take an example like, for instance, abortion. False witnesses say that that unborn children are not alive. False witnesses contribute to their death every day. And we will not stand with them. On the other hand, we take our stand with those who, who wish for their lives. And we open our mouth for the speechless. On the other hand, one of the sins forbidden is wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause and outfacing and overbearing the truth. Wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause or outfacing and overbearing the truth. 
because it is true. Some of us are more clever than others. And some of us find very clever ways, in fact, to defeat the truth that comes to us. You know, you can do that. You can play that game. And unfortunately, probably all of us have at some time or another. We can play the game if we want. We can, we can have a, a battle of words and all the rest of it. But the, the fact is, God's truth remains. And we should not be engaged in this outfacing and overbearing of the truth. Proof text, by the way, is Jeremiah 9.3. And like their, uh, like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me. They say that they are not valiant for the truth on the earth. Obviously, God is saying, on the other hand, you ought to be valiant for truth on the earth. Those who know Pilgrim's Progress know that that's one of the, the characters, Mr. Valiant for Truth. Uh, J. Gresham Mason was called that in a recent biography of him, Mr. Valiant for Truth. And that's got to be us as God's people. If we really want to obey the ninth commandment, not merely do we refrain from outright lies, but we all become Mr. or Miss or Mrs. Valiant for Truth, willing to pay the price for it. Well, failing to speak up for the sake of political expediency or of social and cultural acceptance is not acceptable. And then another thing, so not having a love of the truth, not being willing to pay the cost for truth, is all, and also entertaining elements of darkness, entertaining elements of darkness, providing a hospitable environment for anything having to do with darkness, uh, including misplaced truth. And what I mean by that is gossip. Misplaced truth. Leviticus 19.16, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. All right, so that's the idea. You have two, if somebody wrongs you, you have two possibilities. Uh, you can either go about as a talebearer, telling everyone who will listen how terrible the person is and what they've done, or you can go rebuke your brother and offer him an opportunity to repent and ask your forgiveness. Now, uh, I, I would say the choice is yours, but it's not. God has told you which one you must do. You must not go about as a talebearer. It may be that every last word that proceeds from your mouth is utter, utter truth and verity. Although, I, I will say, sometimes we would amend our words if the person we're speaking about were with us in the room. But even if they were complete truth and verity, yet they are misplaced. And therefore, they are words of darkness and of death rather than of life. And we must not be tail bearers. It must be far, far from us. Well, Calvin says, by the way, we must go further and not be suspicious or too curious in observing the defects of others. For such eager inquisitiveness betrays malevolence or at any rate an evil disposition. How about that? This is Calvin. Calvin, who's considered some sort of, you know, horrible tyrant in, in which he has some kind of inquisition going on in, in Geneva. He's saying, uh, look, not only are we not going to actively, you know, doing gossip, we should not be suspicious or too curious in observing the defects of others. We don't want an, an eager inquisitiveness in the way that we think about others uh, because that, that betrays an evil disposition. We don't want that. Uh, he goes on to say, by the way, for scarcely one in a hundred will be found who will be as kind in sparing the character as other, in others as he himself desires to be pardoned for manifest vices. 
Nay, slander is often praised under the pretext of zeal and conscientiousness. Hence it happens that this vice insinuates itself even among the saints creeping in under the name of virtue, and that is so true, unfortunately, in the broader Reformed churches, that such a spirit pervades the people of God. They go about in suspicious and a holier-than-thou attitude, and and they want to convey to others just how holy they are because they have detected these flaws in their brothers and sisters, and they want to tell you about it. Friends, I'm letting you know, and so that you might not be tempted to that, inasmuch as you do that, you do not reveal yourself to be a super saint, but rather an agent of the dark one seeking to, to, to sow discord among the brethren. We do not harbor that kind. If, so, of, of, if there is a sin, you need to speak to your brother. If they do not listen, you need to bring it to the elders. And once you've, done, once you've exhausted those two things, it's, it's the end of the game. There's nothing more to be said. I hope that's clear. But positively, on the other hand, we must speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Speaking the truth in love, that's the positive requirement. That's the positive side of this. Because indeed, if God is constantly communicating, and he is, in his good nature, he is giving forth good things and constantly speaking what pertains to life and godliness and blessing, and so should we. It's not merely that we refrain from lying, but on the other hand, we open our mouths to speak that which is true in love. And there should never be truth that comes from us that is not accompanied by love. Again, the caricature of Orthodox churches is we speak the truth in hate. I don't think that's really true, but let us be far from it. And as much as I say again, if we are the most Orthodox church here in our city, I, I hope that we are then we should be the most loving church. And every interaction that everyone, anyone ever has with us uh, should be with the obvious manifestation of sincere love as well as perfect truth, speaking the truth in love. All right, well, that's the main body, just those two points of do not lie and do not diminish the truth. And now we consider these in the application more specifically, the duties required in this sentence forbid, forbidden. Okay, this is the larger catechism 144. We're making our way through the larger catechism, really. What are the duties required? Well, the duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. So that is part of our purview under this ninth commandment is preserving the good name of others. And Calvin, by the way, I think is, is really helpful in that. Uh, in, in so many of these things, as it's due unto others as you'd have them do unto you. We all know what it's like to have our reputation sullied because something has been conveyed, maybe in isolation that is true, but the context or the explanation or the motives impugned are not ones that, that are true of us, at least not as we perceive ourselves. And we ought to use that template to say, okay, now, what do we want others to think? Which is to say, come on now, you know me. I would not do such a thing. This is not in accordance with my character. Surely there must be some other part of this. Do that for others. Or do you think uh, the long list of, of, of motives or possibilities, what are the possibilities there? And find the charitable one, unless absolutely proven otherwise, because that's what you would want others to do for you. Use that template. It works very well. 
uh, be appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. Appearing and standing for the truth. Mr. Valiant for truth, we've got to do that. We, we want a whole church full of Mr. and Mrs. and Ms. Valiant for truths who when the opportunity arises, not to be contrary, but out of love and out of faithfulness, wish to stand for the truth. And I'm so thankful for the stories that, that filter into me in various ways in which even our young people and children do this. And we pray all of us would be able to do so. Actually, come to think of it, uh, such, such stories have come from pretty much the youngest to the, the oldest among us uh, in, in not so um, distant past. A charitable esteem of our neighbors, charity, we consider them in charity, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. How about that? Rejoicing in their good name. We're such, we're going we're to come to the final, the tenth commandment, having to do with covetousness. But one of the things about it is we're just naturally selfish people, and we want things for ourselves that, that belong to others, and we don't like it when they have more things. And that includes reputation and plaudits and, and, uh, and recognition. Well, that should not be the case. We should rejoice when there's any element that points to someone else's good name. And on the other hand, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. So far should we be from spreading tales that we should be willing to cover even their infirmities. If it does not rise to the level of a sin that needs to be confronted, then let it be an, an infirmity to be covered in love. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocence. Let, let, me, let me read from 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 7. I should, I should have just said it without telling you the name of the church. But it says, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I would otherwise might have said that and said, what church is that true of? Beloved, you know that Corinth was about the most pathetic church that, that Paul had the honor of, of serving. And they fell short in everything. And they were, this, this place harbored all kinds of sin. They were so immature. They were so grasping. They barely, barely meet the description of a saint. And yet, here Paul is rejoicing in all that can be said that is true of them in any scrap of charity. And we should be like that as well. A ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report. We should have that kind of selective hearing, that kind of polarization. I mentioned there are polarized uh, sunglasses, you know, that admits some frequencies of light and blocks others. And, and we should be like that. And other people should know that too. We should be very inhospitable uh, to any kind of gossip or false report. And that there ought to be a price that people pay if they're going, they're going to come talk to us about that. But on the other hand, a ready willingness to receive a good report. And what will that encourage? Well, it encourages good report, of course. Uh, the reason why people are tempted to gossip is because they know people love it and they're so, they're so juicily receive it. But let's have it rather that people gladly receive a good report. Discouraging tale bearers, flatterers, and slanderers. We all need to work on that. Discouraging flatterers is very hard. 
um, but we need to work on that. Love and care of our own good name, defending it when it need, when need requireth. It is right for us to defend our good name. And every once in a while it is, it is right even to take it to the, the courts of this land, uh, not against fellow believers, but to defend the good name. Uh, yes, we should be willing to do that because we want truth to prevail and we do not gladly allow an error to continue. Keeping of lawful promises, more on that below, and studying and practices of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report, because that's the heart that should be behind it. Duties required. Sins forbidden. What are they? Well, among them, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous. That's from Isaiah 5.23. Those who justify the wicked from, for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man, those who call evil good and good evil. Beloved, this is our day, isn't it? Uh, and the pressure is to call evil things good. There is an extreme pressure in this land to call even the most wicked and heinous of sins to be good and beneficial. Well, we might be under pressure to, to join in with that, but we may not do it. We must not do so, because then we share in their sin. As long as there remains one church in this land who stands for the truth, one church who is willing to speak the truth in love and the whole counsel of God... Well, God is glorified, and it may be that God will use that to bring sinners to repentance, particularly in the sin of homosexuality. But inasmuch as we fall in with everybody else, then we end up sharing in their sin, and we shouldn't do that. Flattering, that's one of the sins forbidden. Job 32 says, Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. How about that? That's just how serious Job understood. Job was a righteous man, a righteous man, and he had a very tender conscience. And he says, I don't know how to flatter, lest my maker take me away. Well, again, we, we need to pray for one another in this. It's, it's not easy in a time of unbridled flattery um, to learn how not to flatter. Psalm 12, they speak idly to everyone to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Well, I remember the first time that I ever heard uh, some of the Scottish saints uh, evaluate preaching and they said that it's acceptable. I remember being un- underwhelmed uh, with such evaluation. And every once in a while, it even rise to the level of most acceptable. But why do they do this? Because why are they so sparing in their praise? Because they know the larger catechism. And they don't want to flatter. Well, having explained all of the many duties required and the sin forbidden, all of which we have, we, we have fallen uh, afoul of in various ways in times past and times recent, I want us, again, to thirdly remember that Christ came to save liars like us. In fact, if you've said that you've not broken this commandment, (laughs) you're a liar. No, we have broken this commandment. And no doubt life is worse because of lying. We know that lying in various ways wrecks havoc in our life, but ultimately it is a sin against God himself, a sin against a God of truth, the God of light and of life. And, and in these ways, we take the side of Satan, don't we? We take the side of his enemy. We are doing the work of, of the enemy. Whenever we at all take a discount of the truth, we fail 
uh, to do the work of the Prince of Peace and the, the God of Light. Well, let God be true and let every man be a liar. We know that we're liars. But on the other hand, we understand that God sent his Son indeed that his body might be broken and his blood shed for this, this sin against the ninth commandment. And who can tell how many sins among us the Lord Jesus suffered and bled and died for regarding this ninth commandment? Well, we'll soon turn to the Lord's Supper, but let me give you the fourth and final application, which is simply to fulfill our vows. I say this because in times past it might not have been quite such a, um, a thing even to think about because there is a basic level of Christianity, and of course people wanted to maintain their good name and they wanted to maintain the vows that they, they made. And one of the duties is keeping lawful promises. And one of the sins forbidden is the breach of lawful promises. All right? So we need, there are lawful promises to make. And all of you, if you're a member of this church, you have made such a promise, actually. You have taken vows before God and before man. And we must be careful to remind ourselves of those. We'll have an opportunity, by the way, next week, Lord willing, as we bring in new members. In fact, we're... um, Lord willing, baptizing someone as well as bringing in new members, will be reminded of those vows. And we should think carefully of our need to fulfill them all. Do you promise in dependence on God's promised help by your prayers, teaching an example to bring up, this is a baptismal vow, your child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, showing him what true faith and repentance are. Likewise, a promise made to be it the means of grace, for instance, in the membership, and use uh, the good things that God has given for the blessing of your brothers and sisters, and to submit in spiritual things to the elders. All of these things are part of the vows that you've taken. Remember the danger of God's wrath to yourself and to this child going back to the baptismal vow if you're negligent in your solemn responsibilities. Well, again, the same can be true of Every aspect of the vows that we've taken, I need not say also of marriage, uh, of course, we must fulfill the vows that we take. Thankfully, we don't take many. It's unwise to take too many oaths or vows because you are absolutely required to keep them. But inasmuch as you do, we should be conscientious and asking the Lord's help to be able to fulfill, fulfill all of those vows. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed for your goodness to us in speaking the truth in love. We know that is exactly what you have done for us and to us this evening. You have spoken your truth through the means of grace, through the Holy Spirit, and you have done so in love because you want us to live. And we know, Lord, that those who cling to your word and faith, they will live. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will have everlasting life. Those who receive not the love of the truth, those who listen and harbor lies, they will die. And so, Lord, it is very much of a piece of your care and concern and love that you speak the truth from every faithful pulpit. And how we pray, Lord, that we receive these things. We freely confess how far we have fallen short of keeping the commandment in its fullness. How we pray that we would go forth in renewal of our commitment to 
speak the truth in love, and indeed to keep, in particular, all of our vows. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.